here. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so we are picking up where we left off last week in uh, Romans 7. And what we did last week was we're starting the second half of Romans chapter 7. And uh, as I mentioned, it's a, uh, it's a passage that's very challenging uh, as far as interpretation is concerned. And, uh, and one that there are uh, some pretty di- uh, considerably different of opinion about among uh, believers. And uh, uh, there's actually a, a, a number of different opinions. There are kind of two primary different opinions of this passage, beginning in verse, uh, where I break it is verse 13 down through the end of the chapter. Some people break it at verse 14. Uh, but uh, uh, there are two two primary views. One is that it's referring to an unregenerate person, uh, and the other view is that it's referring to a regenerate or a saved person. And so that's what we're tackling over the next uh, last week and over the next couple weeks or so as we look at the passage. And uh, uh, so last week, what we did was we looked at verse 13, which is really kind of a pivotal verse or a transitional verse between the first half of the chapter, verses seven, uh, verses one through twelve and the second half of the chapter, which is verses uh, 14 through twenty five and thirteen kind of comes in the middle and ties those two together. So some commentators link verse 13 primarily with the verses before it. Some commentators link it primarily with the verses after it. Uh, it's, it's not really critical one way or the other as long as you see it as a transitional verse that's transitioning from, from, uh, from the early part of the chapter to the, to the latter part of the chapter. The reason, as I explained last week, the reason that I personally like to put it with verse 14 and the verses that follow is because it really ties into the logical argument that follows uh, in those verses uh, uh, 14 through 25. So, so we looked at 13 somewhat in depth and then we did a lot of kind of overview work and foundational work just to prepare us for looking at uh, verses 14 through 25 and trying to trying to get our bearings so that we can interpret it uh, uh, correctly, uh, at least what I hope is correct and uh, what I believe is the correct interpretation of the passage. And I did make clear uh, that you may you may end up after we've gone through the passage, you may end up with a different uh, a different view than what I presented, and that's okay. I'm not going to freak out about that because people of strong uh, faith uh, come down on either side of this equation, and uh, so. Uh, but my concern is that we just try to be as faithful as we can to the Scripture, and if you reach a different conclusion than I, then I'll just leave it up to the Lord to correct you at some point. <laughs> So, uh, uh, that was said in jest. I hope you understand. <laughs> but, uh, so, at any rate, uh, take a look there at verse 13 and the verse of Well, let's just read them and then we'll review a little bit and go on from there. So, he says in verse 13, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And remember, he's asking this question because of the things he said in the verses just before it about 
how sin taking opportunity through the law killed me. And then and then he argues that the law is, in fact, as he says in verse 12, holy and righteous and good. And so then that that uh, brings up the question in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which was good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Okay, we'll stop there. So, uh, what do you remember from last week that we talked about? Let's go back and think about some of those things before we go on. And you all have to participate and make up for all the people who forgot to set their clocks forward this morning. <laughs> we talked about being a logical train of thought. Okay. Okay. And why do we say that? What leads us to conclude that there's a logical train here? So we got verses 14 through 20 that which one starts with or, or or so now. Okay. Okay. So with each subsequent verse, as we proceed down through the chapter, uh, particularly in verses 14 through 20, uh, you get this at the beginning of the verse. He says for or now or but. Uh, so he's he's making a very strong logic logical train or a chain, if you will. He's linking these thoughts together and one follows right after the other. And this is important, I think, for us to keep in mind as we interpret the passage. It's very easy to pick any one verse out and go, oh, well, here's this verse and it says this. And so so this is what the chapter is really trying to say without linking it into the train of logic that Paul is pursuing. So that's one of the things we want to be very careful with as we seek to interpret the chapter, is to try to follow Paul's train of logic. What else? Okay. Okay. What he's talking about here, when he's talking about the law, as far as our interpretation of the passage, now when we get to application, we can think in a broader term. But as far as the 
the actual interpretation of the passage, Paul is dealing with the issue of the Mosaic Law and the coming of the Mosaic Law and how the Mosaic Law, when it came, produced death and etc. etc. So, so as we interpret the passage, let's keep that in mind. He's talking about the Mosaic Law. As we get to the point then of trying to understand how how this applies to us today, we can maybe think in broader terms. But as far as interpretation is concerned. What we need to keep in mind is this is the Mosaic Law that he's referring to. What else? Mike, you look like you took it on the chin today. Didn't you? Uh, I did. <laughs> did you get to you today? No, I was just shaving. Oh, uh, just shaving. Okay. <laughs> so what else do you remember from last week? Yeah. 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 Good. Great. Uh, we uh, he, uh, Gary was bringing up things that we talked about the week before. The reason that Paul uses coveting as his kind of paradigm for the law, or his, or the one commandment that he uses as representative of the law, the reason he uses coveting is because, to some degree, more than the other commandments, it's an internal thing. It's the way we think and what we desire on the inside so it's not the it's not the outside external things of of making graven images or committing adultery or stealing but it's an internal thing of of attitudes and desires and things like that and so uh, so that's one of the things that we find that Paul apparently either struggles with or he anticipates that others struggle with is that you can oftentimes do the outward things of the law, but it's the failure to do the inner things that reveals uh, really the, the sin problem that we have. Okay, what else? Yeah. Yeah. Even as you were saying about the Gary's about covetousness, it's uh, it reminds me that a prisoner you can take them and, and put them in solitary and you can track their body physically, but their mind is still go wherever they want. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Precisely. <clears throat> okay, and then we did talk last week about um, Uh, we did talk about the, the, the two primary interpretations. One is that it is an unregenerate person uh, that Paul is speaking of here, or he's speaking perhaps of his, his own experience as an unregenerate person, or is speaking of a regenerate or a saved person, or Paul is speaking of his current experience as a saved person. And that's the question that comes up beginning... Uh, particularly beginning in verse 14 and the verses that follow. And so uh, one of the handouts I gave you, uh, or the handout I gave you last week, presents uh, both of the ar- arguments on both sides of that case. There are, there are, there are other views kind of that kind of lie in the middle between those, che- those two primary uh, views, uh, but they, but they 
when you really examine them, they tend to fall either one way or the other within those two primary categories. So uh, those are the two primary views. And as I said last week, my own view, I don't know what your view is, my view uh, that I have come to uh, is that it is, in fact, an unsaved person uh, that Paul is describing here, that he's describing uh, his own personal experience to some extent, but he's also describing the experience of the Jews as a whole as they encounter the law. Okay, so so that's my understanding and my view. And uh, and I didn't always view Romans that way. I uh, from the time I was a young adult and and as I was growing up in the church, I always heard that Romans seven <clears throat> was a description of the believers struggle with sin that this was a saved person and this was a saved person, how a saved person struggles with sin. And it's very easy for any one of us to read Romans 7 thinking of our own struggle with sin and find things in Romans 7 that we can identify with. And so that's a very compelling argument. Uh, And that was my view until uh, about, oh, I don't know, maybe 35 years ago or so at some point, I was was teaching a... uh, uh, a noon Bible study on campus over at OU and uh, teaching through the book of Romans. And I got to Romans chapter 6 and I taught through Romans chapter 6 and I was really enjoying all those thoughts about about being dead to sin and free from the law and all those things that he talks about in Romans 6. And then I got to Romans 7 viewing it from the perspective I had always viewed it from as the believers struggle with sin. And I went, what happened to Romans 6? <laughs> and I just, I, I just, I, I, I found that there was, a, there was an incompatibility with my previous view of Romans 7 and what I understood Romans 6 to be teaching. And uh, so as I studied it, I came to the conclusion that in fact, it, it was a, a non-Christian, a description of a non-Christian. And, uh, and in fact, uh, as my wife and I uh, really came to understand Romans 7 from the perspective of a, uh, of a non-Christian, it actually became an instrument for us, a way of viewing things that was helpful for us in raising our children. Because in raising our children, we wanted to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We wanted them eventually to come to faith in Christ. And one of the things that helped us understand how to raise our children so they would see their need of Christ was understanding Romans 7 from the perspective of an unregenerate person. And we employed that idea or that thought uh, as we raised our children and uh, and I think it was, in fact, instrumental in, in at least some of our children coming to Christ is, is uh, as they went through the experience of Romans 7 as an unbeliever. So that's kind of my own personal testimony. Uh, and uh, like I said, you may not agree and uh, we, we may end up agreeing to disagree at the end, but I'm going to uh, give you my best shot anyway, explanation of why I view the passage the way I do. Uh, Several things that we want to keep in mind as we approach this chapter. And like I said, I'm not going to hurry through it. So my goal today was to get down to verse 20. But if we don't get that far, that's fine. And if you have questions, if you have comments, uh, because this is such a difficult passage to wrestle with, please feel free to bring them up. 
as we go through. So it may take us a little longer to get through it if we have some more interaction than is usual. But uh, but I'm completely comfortable with that if you are. Uh, but there's some things I want you to notice, uh, some things that are particularly notable about this passage to keep in mind as we approach it. One is the thing we've already mentioned is the train of logic. OK, let's. Uh, let's be very careful as we go through the passage to keep in mind that Paul is building one thought upon another and contrasting one truth with another truth. Uh, and uh, so that's something that's very obvious. It jumps out to us as we pointed out last week. Verse 14 starts with the word for. Verse 15 with the word for. Verse 16 with the word but. Verse 17 with the phrase so now no longer. Verse 18, for I know. Uh, verse 19 begins for. Verse 20 begins but. Verse 21 is I find then. Verse 22 is for. Verse 23 is but. Etc. Etc. So there's this powerful train of logic, and we want to follow that train of logic as we go down through the passage. The second thing that's very obvious and jumps out at you in, ver- in these verses, and is in fact. One of the strongest, I, I would say, one of the most compelling arguments for it being a believer that is being described here is the fact that all these verses are in the present tense. And he makes a switch from verse 13 where it's in the past tense to the present tense. And uh, that's, you know, that's very, that's very uh, uh, obvious, conspicuous as we go through the passage. And so it's something we'll want to think about and talk about. Something else that you want to notice about the passage <laughs> that beginning from verse 14 and all the way down uh, through the end of his argument, there's no mention ex- except once. There's no mention of the spirit of God or of the Holy Spirit. The only allusion to the spirit is in verse 14, where he speaks to the source of the law being spiritual. And that's the only reference we have to the Holy Spirit through the whole passage. And that has some bearing, should have some bearing on our interpretation. If it's the life of the believer that's being described here, it's very striking that there's no mention of the Holy Spirit all the way through the passage. Uh, The other thing that's striking about the passage, you probably noticed it as we read through it, is this condition that he describes of bondage. Uh, the description of this condition of his inability to do good. That's something that's very conspicuous as you go through this passage. Uh, And so uh, uh, those are just some of the things you want to keep in mind as we look at the passage. Uh, So one of the things I want to do right off the bat is I want to tackle this question of the present tense. Uh, because it really does have some bearing on how we interpret the passage. And it is very striking. You'll notice in verse 13, he says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? It was sin, he says, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through what was good. See, all that's in the past tense. But then we get to verse 14. He says, For we know, present tense, that the law is spiritual and I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Present tense. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I, I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But, and, and so all the way then down through the subsequent verses, we have the present tense. And so one of the things we need to think about is, is the present tense. If, it, if the present tense uh, is literal there, 
uh, and it would appear to be the natural reading of the passage, then we have to conclude that this is Paul writing about his experience as a believer, or he's describing the believer's experience because everything he describes here is in the present tense. And for those like myself who hold that this is not Paul speaking as a believer, we have to have some explanation for why is this in the present tense, okay? And so that's what I want to take a little bit of time to think about. Now, when we use the present tense, we usually use it to indicate what? What's happening right now? Yeah. What's, you know, what's, you know, we use it to indicate the the present existent condition of things, okay? That's the normal, almost always the way we use the present tense, okay? Uh, and when we approach Romans 7, unless we have some compelling reason to view it otherwise, that would be the normal way to view Romans 7, that he's speaking of his present experience. Paul writing as an apostle, writing late in his ministry. He's been a Christian now. He's been a believer for many, many years. And he is describing his present experience as a mature believer. Okay? That would be the normal way to read it. Unless there's something within the context that gives us a compelling reason to view it otherwise. And I would suggest those reasons exist. But it is possible to use the present tense to describe things in the past tense, and we sometimes do this, okay? Why would somebody use the present tense when talking about something that happened in the past? When a person narrates a story, okay. they might say, uh, I'm going down the street. Okay, okay. Now, I'm a storyteller. I like telling stories, okay? And uh, I'd probably bore people with all the stories I tell, but I like telling stories. And I find that in telling my stories, I oftentimes lapse into the present tense. So, for example, one story I used to regale my kids with was the story of my encounter with the Kissing Camels rocks in uh, Colorado. Any of you been to Colorado Springs and seen the Kissing Camels? Okay. Well, some of you have. Okay, not very many of you. But it's uh, on the west side of Colorado Springs. Actually, when you, when you heard about all those wildfires they were having there around Colorado Springs last spring, uh, some of those were burning down into the area called the Garden of the Gods. And there these massive, huge uh, slabs of rock that look like they were one time laying flat in the ground but then have turned vertical. And they're standing clear up in the air, hundreds of feet in the air. And, and there's two major rocks there in the Garden of the Gods. Uh, the gateway rocks and the one on the right kind of looks like two camels kissing each other. Okay, you have, you know, you actually have the heads and then there's a hole in the middle and you can see the humps for each. So so they call them the kissing camels rocks. And back in the old days when I lived in Colorado Springs, you could go out on a Sunday afternoon if you wanted and climb those rocks and they go up, like I said, I don't know, two, three hundred feet up in the air or whatever. They're very huge, massive things. Uh, hundreds, uh, a couple hundred yards more long. Uh, uh, I don't know how long they are, but they're... So we would go out, my brothers, my two brothers and I, we'd go out and we'd climb these rocks. And, if, you know, if we had a friend or somebody with us for the day, we'd go out. So, so one Sunday afternoon, we went out, the four of us, and we climbed the Kissing Camels. And, 
and we got up to the top uh, in an area that we'd not been to before, and we encountered this vertical crevice that went through the rock, and there, there was a floor to it, a bottom to it, so we decided we'd explore it, and we go through this crevice, and as we're going through this crevice, my middle brother, I'm the youngest, the middle brother was in front of me, uh, a friend, and then my oldest brother was behind us, and we're working our way through this crevice, and we're coming through this crevice, and we and we get to this cross crevice, but it has no bottom to it, okay? I mean, not visible bottom to it, and it's fairly wide, and we're kind of wedged in here, and so, so my brother in front, my middle brother, he says, he says, we can get across this. And my oldest brother says, uh, if we go across, can we get back? And he says, I don't think so. So we debate for a while and we decide to go across. OK, so so Jerry jumps across and I jump across and my friend jumps across. Our friend, it might have been a cousin, I forget who was with us at the time. And then my oldest brother, Larry, he jumps across and we move, keep moving on through this crevice. And eventually we get to the east side, the east face of the Kitson Camels. And, and of course, none of us can see except my middle brother, who's in the front, exactly what we're encountering. And he says, well, we're about 10 feet above a ledge. And we need to jump down onto that ledge so that we can get out. Okay. Well, the problem was the ledge was level for a few feet, but then it slopes off, you know, a couple hundred feet to the ground. And uh, so he says, you know, we can jump off. So, so he jumps and leans back and falls back against the rock. And I come out and I jump and I do the same thing. And our, whoever was with us, he comes out and he jumps. And then my oldest brother comes out and he looks at me and he says, I'm going to kill you, Jerry. <laughs> So, anyway, do you notice how I told that story? I told it in the present tense, didn't I? I actually, I didn't even think, because I, I as I got into telling the story, I thought, am I telling this in the present tense like I meant to? And then I realized I am. It was almost inadvertent. I told it in the present tense. Now you're really stuck on a ledge. Oh, you want the end of the story. <laughs> well, Larry jumped, and when he jumped, his feet went out from under him. And headed down that slope, and he boom, sat down and just stopped right there. <laughs> and he's not forgiven Jerry since. <laughs> so, at any rate, we then went off the ledge and found another way down off the rocks. But those are the kind of stories I like to tell. And when I do, I oftentimes fall into the present tense. Why do I do that? Okay, it makes it more real. It adds. Drama, it gives you some sense of being there. Okay? As the storyteller, you're actually reliving it. Yes, yes. I'm reliving it, telling the story. I'm reliving it, and, and I'm drawing you into it to relive it with me. So that would be a reason why we would use the present tense to describe something that's happened in the past. But that's not enough argument to say that that's in fact what Paul is doing here. Okay, because the normal way to read this, to read it, would be to understand that Paul is saying it's in the present tense. We could say, well, this would be a good reason why he might use the present tense to describe something in the past. But we still need to have some compelling reason to understand that, in fact, this is what he's doing here. Okay, and I would suggest to you 
that those reasons do exist. Uh, and uh, there's a couple clues to this. One is, uh, you'll notice that he says in verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. So speaking in the present tense, he says, I don't understand what I'm doing. But this is Paul, as I said, late in his ministry, late in his life, been a believer now for many years, traveled the world preaching the gospel of Christ, and he says, there's something I do not understand. But then we go down through the passage and he explains to us exactly what was going on. He explains to us what it was that he had said earlier in the passage he did not understand. So clearly, there's a time progression within the passage, right? There's a progression. So it's not really all Paul's personal experience. There was a point in Paul's personal experience when he didn't understand, but now he says, I do understand. This is what I have concluded. So even if you viewed this as talking about a believer, it's still clearly Paul not talking in a strict present tense. Because he's described something that was true at one point that he did not understand, that is no longer true about him, he now does understand. Okay? So, we begin to see, well, it's not strict present tense because he is describing a process of something that was true at one point is no longer true about him. He didn't understand at one point, now he does understand. Okay? So I start going, okay, now it's not strict present tense. But if you'll notice in your handout that I gave you, the one I just passed out this morning, I draw a contrast between the I of Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and the believer that is described in Romans chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 8. And there are some striking differences. As we mentioned, this passage is full of talk about a guy who's in bondage and incapable of doing what is right. But Romans 6 makes it emphatically clear that the believer is not in bondage to sin. He's freed from sin. And Paul says on a couple occasions in Romans 6, Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Clearly, Paul is saying the believer has the ability to live righteously. Now, this is in striking contrast to what we see in Romans chapter 7. The person described in Romans chapter 7 is in bondage and incapable of doing what's right. Furthermore, Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 6 <clears throat> that that the believer has, who, who was once joined to the law has now, through Christ, died to the law and been joined to Christ. So the believer in Romans 6 has no obligation any longer to the law. His relationship with the law has been severed. But the person described in Romans chapter 7 is somebody who very clearly has a real sense of his duty and obligation to the law. We're speaking of the Mosaic law here. Okay. 
So what I'm suggesting to you here is that the person described in Romans chapter 7 cannot be a believer. And the only way you can see it as a believer. Now, there are some other problems and, and, and issues to be answered. And those are on the reverse side of the sheet that I gave you last week. But we'll deal with those as we go through today and, and next week and deal with this. This issue will answer some of those questions. But it seems quite clear then that the person described in Romans chapter 7 cannot be a believer because the person described in Romans 7 is described in ways that directly contradict the things that he said in Romans 6 and the things that he says in Romans chapter 8. And we haven't even gotten to Romans chapter 8, but in Romans chapter 6, the verse we look at today, verse 14, he says, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes it clear that anybody who is saved, anybody who is a believer, is not of the flesh, but is of the Spirit. So, so the really compelling reason to understand that Paul is speaking, is using the present tense rhetorically rather than literally here, is the fact that this cannot be Paul as a believer. Now, some people would argue, well, it's a believer, but it's a young believer. Okay, it's an immature Christian. But that's no way to describe Paul at the end of his ministry, right? This is no way to describe Paul when he's writing the book of Romans. Paul is neither immature nor young as a believer. He's an experienced, mature Christian with a profoundly developed sense of theology. Okay, so... So it seems then we have a compelling reason to believe that Paul is not speaking about his present experience because of what he says in Romans 6 and what he says in Romans 8. But rather that he is using the present tense as a rhetorical tool to, as I did with my story about the kiss and camels, to draw us in, to help us understand the dilemma and the crisis that a non-Christian faces as he encounters the law. He is, in fact, describing what he mentioned in Romans chapter, in, in chapter 7, verse 13. How the law, excuse me, how sin interplaying with the law and interacting with the law causes sin to become to us utterly sinful. Okay? So that's what he's doing in Romans in verse 13. He's made the argument that sin becomes utterly sinful by its interplay or its interaction with the law. Right. Now he's going to explain to us how that process works. For those who who view this as as descriptive of, of the believer's experience, now remember what I said last week is if I say that Romans 7 is not descriptive of the believer's struggle with sin, that's not to say the believer does not struggle with sin. Okay. We made that clear last week. We know the believer's struggle with sin. The question is just, is that what Romans 7 is discussing? And what's at stake, I've been off track here a little bit, but what's at stake in this, and the reason why I, if this is so important to me and why you know we could just kind of breeze by this and I just tell you what I think and not struggle with it, 
and, and just leave you all to wonder why I'm so far off in left field. But the reason why it's so important to me is because when I, when I personally, I shared my own testimony, when I personally came to understand that Romans 7 was not describing my struggle as a believer, then Romans 6 became really real to me. Then I began to go, okay, Romans 6 can work. You see, always before I read Romans 6 thinking, okay, but I've got Romans 7 ahead of me. And so even though I can talk about being free of sin and not being in bondage to sin, also, in reality, the experience, Paul's experience, and if it was Paul's experience, it's certainly going to be my experience, but I just can't do what I want to do. <clears throat> now, I'm not suggesting that all people who hold that view of Romans 7 lead defeated Christian lives. And that's certainly not the case. I know many very godly people who hold that view of Romans 7. But, nevertheless, I think they, I think they lead victorious Christian lives in spite of their view of Romans 7, not because of it. Because I think if you view Romans 7 as, as, as the experience of the believer, it becomes an excuse not to pursue the reality of Romans 6. And that's why I think it's important. I want us to really experience the reality of Romans 6 in our life. I want to experience it in my life. I want you to experience it in your life. And whatever you do with Romans 7, and however you end up viewing Romans 7 after we're done with it and we're into Romans chapter 8, whatever you do with it, it would just be my hope that you would do nothing with Romans 7 that would mitigate or compromise the power of the truth of Romans chapter 6. So this is why I think it's so important and this is why I want to take time to really wrestle with these questions. Uh, so, so we have a we have a couple compelling reasons to view Romans six as uh, the present excuse me the present tense of Romans seven as being rhetorical rather than literal, and those two compelling reasons that I've mentioned are one that we see quite clearly it can't be a strict literal sense because Paul talks about something that ultimately eventually changes even within the context of the passage, so that's one compelling reason. The second compelling reason is because he describes things that I would argue cannot be true of the believer. So it can't be Paul talking about himself as a believer. The only way to make those things true about the believer, the things that he says about being in bondage, is to somehow water them down so they don't carry their full force. But we have to remember that that what Paul is trying to present to us, what Paul is trying to explain to us is how sin interacts with the law to bring about our death. That's the point of verse 13, right? Verse 13 is, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. So in verse 13, he's clearly talking about what killed him. <laughs> What destroyed his life? Not as a believer, but as an unbeliever. Verse 13 and the verses immediately before it are talking about an unbeliever. And how an unbeliever is dead in their sin because of their sin. 
and that it's not the law that did that. The law is holy and righteous and good. It's not the law that killed them, but rather it's sin that killed them. Using the law, and the law was introduced in order that we might discover sin. We might learn about sin and we might learn about the presence of sin in our life and we might see the utter sinfulness of sin. So that's what he's trying to argue. The, and, that, and, and if, in fact, as I, as I pointed out to you, this is a logical chain that he's following, he's beginning with the statement that the, that the purpose that the law served good as it was, was it serves by aggravating our sin and arousing our sin and sin then causing our death cause us to see something about ourselves we did not know before. That sin indwells us. It's not just something out there. Or as I said, it's not this little, you know, Chia pet that we have on a leash and you know, we can just do with it what we want. But it is this dominating, overpowering slave master in our lives. This is what we discover when we see the interplay of sin with the law. Okay? So, he says then in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So, what he does here in verse 14 is he makes a statement that grows out of what he just said in verse 13. In verse 13, he said that sin, exploiting the law, killed me. Okay, that's the point he's making in 13. That my death is the result of sin as it exploits the law. So sin is exploiting the law and it's killed me so now I know this. This is what I know. I know the law is good and I know I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now he's reached that conclusion because of what the law, well, excuse me, what sin has done with the law in his life. The question then arises, arises how did that happen? How is it that Paul came to the conclusion that the law is good but that he's a flesh and that he's in bondage to sin. How did that happen? He knows it because he's seen the interplay of the law and sin. So he knows this, but how does he know it? And that's the question he addresses in verses 15 through 17. He describes how he came to this knowledge that the law was good, but that he was a flesh sold into bondage to sin. He describes that process in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 20, he reaches his conclusion. Okay? <clears throat> so, so, he says in verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, if you will, he kind of steps back and describes how he got. He's point, verse 14 is point B. Now he steps back to point A and he's going to tell us how he got from point A to point B. And he starts out by saying, for what I am doing, I don't understand. 
So there's a point in Paul's experience, or we could say in the experience of the unregenerate, particularly the unregenerate Jew as he encounters the law. But there's a point in Paul's experience where there's something going on that he doesn't understand. What is it he doesn't understand? Excuse me? Okay, based on what? What is it about his actions he doesn't understand? Okay. Before the law came, he didn't have this problem. But the law came, and when the law came, it brought to the fore this dichotomy that he experiences, this dualism that he experiences in his life. And the dualism or the dichotomy that he experiences is that on the one part, he wants to do something. We see late in the verses that follow something good. He wants to do it, but he doesn't do it. And on the other side, there are things because he's read the law and knows the law that he doesn't want to do. He knows they're wrong to do, i.e. coveting. And yet he finds himself doing them. Now, how can this be? Here's a guy who, as he says, and we'll see later, uh, down in the later verses of chapter 7, he'll say he delights in the law of God. He reads the law of God and he goes, this is good, I like this, this is right, I agree with this. In fact, he says it here in, in the verses that we read. He says, uh, uh, he says, in verse 16, for if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. In other words, the fact that he wants to do what the law says means that he agrees with the law, confessing that the law is good. Now, we do have to confront the problem that that uh, one of the things we encounter in this, in this section in Romans and throughout Scripture is that Paul says at one point here, he says that the mind that's set on the flesh cannot submit to the law of God. Okay? So, is Paul contradicting himself here? Is Paul saying, on one hand, the mind set on the flesh can't submit to the law of God, and on the other hand, uh, I'm saying I do want to submit to the law of God. Well, actually, there's no contradiction. It's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want to submit to the law of God, but I can't. That's precisely what he's saying. Okay? So there's no contradiction. When Paul says the mind set on the flesh cannot submit to the law of God, he's not saying that the mind set on the flesh doesn't agree with the law. He's not saying the mind set on the flesh doesn't it sometimes want to do what the law says? What he says is he can't do it. And that's exactly the crisis that Paul is facing here. Paul is facing a crisis of wanting to do what the law says, but he's unable to do it. And the question is, is that true? Is it possible for an unbeliever, since that's my position, is it possible for an unbeliever 
to want to do the law of God. Any takers here? I think so. Why? I mean, that, to me, that was the hardest thing to go from the strongest argument for him being the generous here. Yeah. If, if you look at it in the context of a devout Jew, which he was mm-hmm. before he was saved, he really wanted to keep, I mean, he did keep the law as far as he knew. Yes. Keep the law. Yes. So he really did want to keep the law. Yes, yeah. And in fact, that's characteristic of the Jews, particularly in Paul's day. And we remember Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3 when he tells about all the things that he had before he came to Christ and then the things he had to give up. And remember he talks in Philippians 3 about, you know, for you know, for, forsake all things for the sake of knowing Christ. And, and we usually when we read that verse, we think about material things or whatever. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about giving up a good job so he can know Christ. What he's talking about is giving up his own self-righteousness so he can know Christ. And he describes that self-righteousness and he says, as to the Pharisee, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I'm blameless. So, yes, the Pharisees particularly are a classic example of people who love the law. That was their big thing. In fact, they were so obsessed with the law. And so if you think of the law as a body of commandments here, what they did, the Pharisees did, is they added all kinds of other commandments to the law as a buffer. So you'd have to break all these other commandments. So there's a commandment, you know, you know, keep the Sabbath. And so in order to protect the commandment to keep the Sabbath, which was God's simple commandment, they added all these other things about you can't do this, you can't do this. You know, and so they added this buffer around the law in hopes that it would keep you from getting through to the law. This all started with the return from captivity. When they were carried off into captivity into Babylon, they were carried off into captivity because they had forgotten God's law. And they had disobeyed God's law. One of the specific commandments that God rebuked them for as they were carried off into captivity was the failure to keep, uh, to keep the Sabbath year, the, the every 50th year, to keep the Sabbath year. And he says, you're going to go off for 70 years until you've made up for those 450 years. You haven't kept the Sabbath year. Okay, So they're carried off into captivity. And pardon? Every seventh year. Every seventh year, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the fiftieth year was the year of Jubilee. Yes. Uh, so when they came back from captivity, they realized, oh, that's the reason we got carried away into captivity because we had forgotten God's law. So when you read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and 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 those stories back about that time. And uh, and uh, all those guys, you know, what is their big thing? The big thing is let's learn the law. Let's keep the law. And that became a dominant feature then of Judaism up through the time of Christ and into the life of the Apostle Paul. So when Jesus is walking on the earth and he's encountering the Pharisees, it's interesting. He never rebukes them for not loving the law. He never rebukes them because they don't value the law. He rebukes them because they're hypocrites and don't keep the law. So he says, on the outward side, outwardly, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. Inside, you're full of dead people's bones. Okay. So, in fact, it is possible for, a belie- for an unbeliever to love 
if you will, the law of God. Not love it perfectly. Not love it truly as we might think of as, as, uh, as saints today. But it was certainly possible for them to. And Paul is a classic example of someone who was devoted to the law, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as to the righteousness that is found in the law, he said, I was blameless. Doesn't mean he was blameless before God, but it means as people looked out from the outside and they saw, okay, he keeps the law. So, so what he says here is, okay, I, I wanted to keep the law, but even Paul apparently, although we don't encounter this in any of the rest of his testimony in other places in Scripture, it's apparent here that that even Paul knew, even though outwardly he was blameless as regard to the law, he knew he wasn't keeping it perfectly. He knew in his heart he was a coveter. Okay? So he says, I wanted to know the law. I wanted to keep the law. I love the law. I wanted to do what is right. And I didn't want to do what was wrong. But I still found myself doing it. So this experience of wanting to do what's right and the inability to do it, to do what's right, letting to understand the law is good. Just his agreement with the law. Just him saying, OK, the commandment thou shalt not kill. I agree with that. Didn't keep him from hating people, as we see. <laughs> In fact, he killed believers, right? He killed Christians. OK, so. So, even though he didn't want to kill, let me back up. The fact that he says, I agree with the law that it's wrong to kill, to murder, that in itself is testimony that I know the law is good. That's his first statement in verse 14, right? We know the law is good. How does he know the law is good? Because instinctively within him, he found himself agreeing with it. So he says, I know the law is good. But what's the other statement he makes in verse 14? In contrast to his statement that the law is good, that the law is spiritual, what's his other statement in verse 14? But I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. This is the other thing he's discovered by this, by this dichotomy that he experiences in his life. This dichotomy he experienced in his life is I want to do what's right and I don't do it and I don't want to do what's wrong and I do do it. And this, this dichotomy taught him two things. The first thing it taught him is the law is good. I do know the law is good. And the second thing taught him there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. If the law is spiritual, then I'm of the flesh. And he's using flesh not in a so much a physical sense, but the sense of the sinful flesh. That I am of flesh and I am sold into bondage to sin. And he discovers in his experience a bondage that he did not know about before. This is what the law did for Paul. This is what the law does for the Jew, the Mosaic law. This is what it does. It shows him two things. It shows him the spiritual nature of the law, that it's from God and that it's good. And it shows them that they are in bondage to sin. So he says in verse 17, and 17 is a problem verse in itself, so we'll have to tackle that in depth next week. 
But in verse 17, he says, so then. Now, he says. No longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, as I said, that verse presents us with a lot of challenges, so we'll tackle that next week. But but the conclusion he's reaching is. There's something going on in me I didn't know about before. As the commentator Douglas Moo puts it, there's an actor in this drama I didn't know about. Or there's a factor in this situation of which I was not aware that prevents me from doing what I want to do. What is that other actor? What is that factor that's in the situation that keeps me from doing what I know I ought to do? That's the crisis that he faces. And he confronts it there in verse 17. And then he reaches his conclusion beginning in verses 18 and following. So that's as far as we got, which is fine with me. Uh, And we'll pick it up with verses. We'll tackle the problems of verse 17 next week and go on from there.